guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is Bob DeCano of DeCano Weightlifting. Bob is a highly respected weightlifting coach who was inducted into the USA Weightlifting Hall of Fame in 2007 for his contributions to coaching. He's been the coach of four national champions, two national record holders, and 27 top 10 nationally ranked lifters. Bob has been on the coaching staffs of 17 US national teams to international competitions, five adults being world championships, and the Summer Olympics. His lifters have competed in seven Olympic trials, with one, Albert Hood, the third American to snatch double body weight, earning a berth on the 1984 Olympic team. Bob is also the author of a very popular weightlifting book, Weightlifting Programming, A Winning Coach's Guide. On this episode, Bob and I discuss many topics, including Bob's background and influences, the good and not so good things that Bob currently sees within the physical preparation profession, Bob's training philosophy and principles, how Bob designs Olympic lifting programs, Bob's technical model for teaching the Olympic lifts, the biggest lessons Bob has learned over his career, and much more. This was a really great episode, guys, and I hope you enjoyed. Okay, Coach Bob DeCano, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you come on to my podcast. Just for the listeners, Bob, who might be too familiar with who you are, which I would imagine wouldn't be too many people, but if there is anyone out there, um, just fill us in on your background. Well, uh, I've been a weightlifting coach now since 1969, and that was before there were very many weightlifting coaches at all. So I've been doing this a long time. Uh, I've developed quite a few national and international level competitors. I've coached four national champions here in the USA. I've had an Olympian. I've had a number of people on world championship teams. And I've, uh, I've coached on, on five world championship teams myself, in addition to 12 other international teams for the US. Uh, I've also been involved in strength and conditioning before there was such a thing as a strength and conditioning coach. And I've, uh, I've done, I think, quite a bit to, to uh, develop some of the methodologies for that, uh, primarily involving snatches and clean and jerks to train athletes in other sports. Mm-hmm. So uh, my, my background is fairly vast and long, um, and, and I'll leave it at that. We'll probably get into it. A few more things that I've forgotten along the way as we move forward. Why Olympic weightlifting? What, what initially got you in there? Well, I was uh, I was the smallest kid in my class. I was the only only Japanese kid in a predominantly Mexican neighborhood, so I needed to do something uh, where I could stand up for myself. Yeah. And so, from a very early age, uh, I was interested in doing things that would uh, allow me to to hold my my space, so to speak. I got started doing some judo initially, but uh, I eventually gravitated toward weightlifting when I when I saw a copy of uh, Strength and Health magazine on the newsstand, and uh, that got me fascinated with the idea of getting stronger. And back in those days, anybody that trained with a barbell, uh, they all pretty much did the same thing before they began to specialize in either bodybuilding or weightlifting or just weight training in general. And uh, weightlifting just seemed a lot more attractive to me. Who would you say have been the biggest influences on you, not only as a coach, but also personally? Um, I, I would say probably the first one was, was Tommy Kono, because he was in that first issue of Strength and Health that I saw. And at that time, there were very few uh, Japanese Americans that were involved in sports at all. In fact, we were we were all considered too small to be in, in conventional sports. And so when I saw that there was a Japanese-American involved in the sport at a very high level, uh, it opened up my eyes to the possibility of participating in sports. So he was my first influence. I never got to be anywhere near as good as he was, but it did let me know that the door was open. And uh, then uh, my coach, Bob Heist II, was instrumental in influencing me. And he was... uh, 
he was very helpful in that he was very experimental in the way that he went about coaching it and in developing new exercises and new approaches that were considered unconventional at the time. So mm-hmm. uh, he got me interested in trying things that were not the norm to see if we could solve problems in that way. And uh, I guess the third person who's been very influential for me was Harvey Newton, who was the U.S. Olympic coach in 1984. He invited me up to the Olympic Training Center to help coach the national team at that time. And uh, that provided me with some insights in coaching uh, elite-level athletes. So all of those things went into uh, formulating my approach to the sport. Great stuff. Currently, what would you say are the the not so good things, and also the very good things that you currently see within weightlifting? So, and with the not so good things, what type of solutions would you offer towards them? So that the, the basically the good, the bad, and the ugly. What 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 excites you in weightlifting, and, and what's what what kind of uh, uh, grinds your gears a bit? So, well, I, I think uh, looking at it from a global perspective. The expansion of IWF from when I got into the sport, it was less than 100 nations. Now we're up over 180. Mm. So that means there are 180 programs around the world that are looking for talent. And that means that uh, the chances of finding more outstanding athletes is much better. Uh, the introduction of women's weightlifting, I think, it has, yeah. has probably opened up vistas that we hadn't imagined before. And so... Uh, the women's side of the sport is growing very rapidly just because uh, whenever whenever a new sport is introduced, you, you get a lot of growth initially. And so that's happening, and, and it's attracted a different audience to the sport than, than what we've had previously when it was an all-male activity. Mm-hmm. Um, those are two of the good things. I think we still have a problem with the issue of drug testing. Um, uh, uh, What's happened recently where they're going back and testing old samples and then uh, uh, suspending people or or taking away medals that were won, say, eight years ago, Mm -hmm. I think that removes some of the the luster off the sport. I think we'd like to see the sport crown its champions at the event and not in a drug lab eight years down the road. So uh, I I think we need to to figure out how we're going to work that particular protocol. Yeah. Um, there's there's different ways to look at that, both good and bad. Um, as far as uh, I, I think uh, on some of the the good things, I think we're not so committed now to uh, certain nations being given advantages at the international level. I think we are probably looking at it, at having a more playing, even playing field and developing talent as it, as it grows and not looking at it so much as one nation or one political ideology over another, but just growing the sport in general. So, so that's good. Um, here in the United States, we have, a. We have a new influx of people into the sport. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that's going to turn out. Uh, it's a younger generation; they have different values, and uh, I'm still waiting to see how that's going to how that's going to play out. Mm-hmm. So you you have a uh, an excellent book out on, on programming for Olympic weightlifting. Um, what made you want to write that book, Bob? Uh, just because of all of the bad programming that I saw, <laughs> and I, I saw that a lot of people really don't understand uh, the principles of programming, and uh, especially since we've gotten more and more new coaches into the sport lately, and really there wasn't any um, any reference for them to go to. USA Weightlifting has never published. Uh, um, any kind of reference telling people how do you train athletes. Yeah. And so I decided it was time to, to put down some of the principles that have worked for me that were based on, on sound uh, research and empirical results so that at least people had some, something to follow. And if they wanted to deviate from that, they, they could make whatever differentiations they needed to off of a basic, uh, a basic approach. 
could you maybe get into programming for weightlifting? So basically, this question is the all-encompassing, like, could you get into your philosophy of Olympic weightlifting training? And then, aside from your philosophy, then, I know some coaches don't necessarily like the word philosophy. They might prefer to use, what, what are your principles that you abide by? So what are the principles that drive your programming process for weightlifting? And you can get as in-depth as you want here, because I know within your book, you you know, you, you actually start off the book talking about, like, the physiology of training, which was, you know, you started talking about certain adaptations at a cellular level, um, which was excellent, you know, to kind of lay down more of a foundation. And then in the program, you talked about the different classes of lifters from one to two to three, and then you got into the actual programming details. And just to let you know myself, like, from uh, a program design and periodization standpoint, when it comes to all of sports training, really, I'm a geek. Like, I love reading about training and methodology. A bit like uh, there's a gentleman called Derek Evening in Canada, He'd be similar too. So, like, you can basically go now for the next however long you want and really get in depth here now in terms of programming. Like, take us from A to Z here if you can. So that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to get you on. And I'm sure if 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 the if your answer stimulates more questions along the way, I'll, I'll be sure to, to add them on. Okay. Well, I think when you're um, when you're embarking on on mastering a process that can get to be very complicated. Uh, as you advance through the various levels. Uh, I think what people need initially is a cookbook approach. And so what I did with the book was I tried to lay out some of the principles that I follow, but more important than that, I, I tried to uh, uh, put into place some things that people can follow uh, in, in a recipe type of fashion. Yeah. For instance, if you're going to, if you're going to become a cook, you start out with a cookbook and you follow the recipes and then after you do it so many times you start thinking about ways where you can change the recipe so that uh, it, it, the food comes out more to your liking. And so what I wanted to provide was a basic cookbook so that people could start training people uh, with, a, with a proven method that works and then as they move along they could begin to make modifications as they needed it. Mm -hmm. And so the principles that I included would help them to make those modifications. But uh, there's probably another book in me about uh, how you approach uh, that entire process of training an athlete. I, I think what people need to do is to understand that what they are working with is an organism. Yeah. And that organism has certain uh, genetic assets and liabilities and as a coach you have to learn how to identify those and make use of those and also there are certain uh, societal behavioral behavioral norms that both coaches and athletes come with and you have to deal with those mm -hmm. um, here in the US we have a lot of people that think that they can do anything and and in a, in a way that's good because you're getting people to try things that they wouldn't otherwise try. But at the same time, you've got people that really don't have very much aptitude for a certain activity pushing forward with that and not realizing that they have limitations that are probably going to put a cap on their accomplishments. So part of the job of the coach is to realize what you're really working with. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that could actually be another book. But uh, I, I would hope that uh, the initial chapters of my book would encourage some people to learn more about how the body works and understand homeostasis, mm. uh, how hormones work, uh, how changes are evoked within the body. And then if they do that, they can understand why they have to modify certain aspects of the training. But I do think that, that weightlifting training uh, is an, it's an exceptional model for how the training of athletes should work because just about everything in weightlifting that the coach can apply is measurable. And uh, if, we were to, if we were to go to another sport that's much more subjective, mm -hmm. uh, some of the ways and some of the parameters that you use to modify training are not easily measurable. But uh, weightlifting has all these measurable parameters and so it's easier to understand the process. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's a good model for coaches in all sports to understand and they could work more toward their own specific sport after that. So I, I look on weightlifting program as being a model for how to train athletes in general. Yeah, what I really liked in your initial chapters on the human organism was you spoke about kind of human migration throughout the world and 
the fact that that has happened, and particularly because America is such is such a country that was built on immigration, like you're getting so many different physical characteristics in terms of the lifters that can present themselves to you as a coach. So it was just a, it was a very good point that you brought up in your book. But so let's let's just say that an athlete does turn up to your gym completely raw, completely green, and they're like, okay, coach. I want you to make me the best possible lifter that I can be. How does that process go? Well, the real obvious things, and this is what most coaches are going to do, they're going to start uh, maybe taking stock of what sort of uh, athletic talent this particular person has. And then you're going to go about the process of, of teaching them the technique of the lifts. And at the same time, I think it's very important that coaches uh, – teach an athlete the work habits that are necessary to become a good athlete because a lot of people come in and they don't have any idea mm. that uh, a lot of becoming an athlete depends on how you live your life outside of the gym. And uh, if, you've got, if you've got a team of athletes that's already established, they are going to take care of a great deal of that. They're going to encourage new lifters um, how to rest, how to eat, how to sleep, how to manage their lives, uh, even what sort of friendships that they should have. And uh, so I'm, I'm very, very big on, on encouraging that sort of thing. And then there's a, a, a second chapter that takes place after they've learned how to lift, and that is learning how to perform in competition. So just the training part, is important. It's absolutely vital. But there are so many other parts uh, in, involved in becoming an athlete mm. that people coming in from the outside just have no idea of what it takes. Um, majority of people that have not been athletes or not grown up around athletes only know what they see, you know, on television or on the internet, and that only uh, touches on on only a few aspects of how athletes have to live. Uh, one of the things that I really like to emphasize that's almost never covered in the media, uh, I tell my athletes to rest hard. And that means putting a lot of effort into rest and recuperation, recovery, those sorts of things, mm -hmm. and paying attention to eating and when you eat and when you sleep and how your life is regulated. That's almost never touched upon. So that's one of the things that goes into the, the education of an athlete in addition to the actual training part. There's plenty of stuff on how to teach people how to lift and getting to be more and more stuff about how to train. But there's not very much out there about what to do when you're not in the gym. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in, in Dressler's book, The Weightless Encyclopedia, that's one thing he touched on is that he felt that was going to be the next big thing in training is that restoration. And he felt that was one area where the Soviets were superior than the Western world, even though, okay, there was a shit ton of anabolics, but he's like, even aside from that, even their more natural methods, they were they were just miles ahead. They they were they kind of had a more bigger respect and understanding for the need of, of restoration. Um, if you wanna do you wanna add anything to that? Are you gonna say something? Yeah, well, I, I think um, the education process needs to start early because if you've got an athlete that's very talented mm. and he comes into you and he's got a tremendous amount of energy and a great metabolism, uh, you can train him pretty hard and yeah. they can still go out and and do a lot of uh, a lot of stupid things, stay out late, not get enough rest, and eat poorly, yeah. and still continue to make progress. And if that happens early in their development, they think it's always going to be that way. Yeah, yeah. And then when they find out that it's not going to be that way, it can be harder for them to adjust. So from early in their career, uh, it, it's good to try and get them to develop those those habits of what to do outside of the gym. This is why I really like getting athletes in. Um, ideally, I would like to start kids at around 12 or 13 years of age. Mm -hmm. But if they've been athletes from the time they were 8, 9, 10, and they've developed athletes' work habits and lifestyle, it's a lot easier to, to make the most of their talent. Yeah, yeah. So what I'd like to do now is maybe just talk about the technical model of the snatch and the clean and jerk. And then after we speak about that, could we maybe get into the programming of, you know, how do you structure your your uh, programming from a micro to meso to macro cycles, if you do use those terms, or, or how, you know, and how you 
or if you want to get into how that weekly structure looks and obviously it'll vary among a beginner intermediate versus advanced maybe how you classify in your different types of lifters so but in terms of just the technical model what are your preferred methods to teach the olympic lifts do you prefer the top down or do you prefer a combination or does it again depend on the skill acquisition of the athlete that's presented in front of you so how, how would that go well i, I i've been able to uh very much uh, do things on a case-by-case basis. Okay. And uh, the first thing that I do with an athlete is uh, a diagnosis of, and mo- most of them are coming to me now with some background in lifting. So yeah. what I do is I take a look at their snatch, their clean and jerk, and squatting, and find out uh, not how much they can lift, but where the weak points are in their technique mm-hmm. and where the weak points are in their body. And then when we go about training, we try to prioritize working on those weak points initially from a technical standpoint. So if they're, if the extension on their pull is not very quick, then we'll include more exercises that put an emphasis on that faster extension. Uh, if they have trouble locking out overhead, we might do more exercises that work on that aspect. And that's for a very short time in each, each workout because when, when an athlete comes in and I tell them all this, your body is suited to what you've been doing. You're adapted to what you've been doing. Yeah. So if you've been laying around watching TV all your life up till now, that's what your body's good at. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to change it into a balanced weightlifter. So we have to start working on the things that are the weakest in what you do. And we're going to fix those things first. And then we're going to include exercises toward the end of the workout to strengthen areas that uh, need to get to be a lot stronger as well. So we'll start out with technical exercises, but they are specific to the athlete for the, at that point. Yeah. Or we might do, uh, let's say that we're doing uh, snatches off the blocks initially. We might be doing them with, at different block heights depending on where the weakness is in the technical movement. Okay. Then the rest of the workout is going to be, we, we might do that for 20, 25 minutes, and then the rest of the workout for the hour is devoted to strengthening those muscles that I find are particularly weak. Uh, so we might put more emphasis on developing leg strength or, or uh, the spinal erectors or shoulders, depending on what they need. So uh, the first um, few months is devoted entirely to developing technique and remediating weaknesses. Okay. Because I, I would like to get them to the point where when I put them on a regular program to help them move forward, they're balanced. So we don't have to deal so much with the issue of balancing the body, uh, but we can we can grow the body in a balanced fashion. Yeah, and so let's just say, though, hypothetically, an absolute beginner comes in. How would you treat that situation? And I suppose obviously you're, you know, you're. Uh, let's just uh, to make the, the the this hypothetical situation easy. Let's say they don't have any previous injuries and their mobility is good in terms of they have the range of motion to hit the positions you want to hit. How would that teach model go? Uh, again, like so, w- would you like say I know like Glenn Penley, like he has that kind of top down model of where he goes from position one to two to three and. Greg Everett has a certain way of teaching the list. Do you have a certain way that you like to teach them? If you had a pure beginner. Well, if I had a pure beginner, uh, the first thing I'd like to do is make them comfortable in the bottom positions. Okay, nice. So we would probably work on uh, overhead squats or squat snatch presses behind the neck in a squat, um, snatch balances, front squats, uh, and even um, overhead lunges for the jerk. And so I, I believe very strongly if you want somebody to go to a certain position, you have to put them in that position and get them comfortable there. Yeah. And then you remove the inhibitions about going into that position. Nice, nice. So we, we work on that. And then uh, and we work on it every day until it got to the point where it was uh, that bottom position was mastered. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, – Transitioning into that bottom position from, say, the top of the pole or the top of the jerk drive, there are certain specific exercises that are involved that way. But at the same time, we would be working on developing pulling technique 
through power snatches or power cleans, uh, either from the floor or off blocks or from the hang. Mm -hmm. And the position of the blocks and the position of the hang would depend on where the specific weaknesses of that athlete are. Okay. Okay. No, that's nice because that's kind of been what I've been doing. Like I'm a novice Olympic weightlifter and I'm six foot two. And if you saw me in person, you'd be like endurance runner. Like I'm like genetically, like I'm a, that that would probably be my phenotype expression anyway. Or, or definitely, I'm definitely genetically more wired to be a, an aerobic athlete because uh, uh, when I was younger, I did a lot of middle distance running. Any time I've ever had to do anything of a, an aerobic nature, I'm, I'm usually one of the best there. But when it came to like anything of an alactic nature, it was always just like the like short <laughs> like short sprints or anything explosive. It was just like. Uh, like you know, I was always the slug off the off the end line when the whistle went, and we we're doing sprints or anything like that. So, but just with the weightlifting now, I'm currently doing my masters in St Mary's in Twickenham, and they're very big into their Olympic weightlifting. So uh, now my cleans are pretty good because I've done a lot of cleaning just through strength and conditioning programs as an athlete, as a coach. But my snatch because my levers needs a lot of work. But that's what I've been doing currently. I've been doing every day my snatch. Even today, now I'm snatching. I start every session off with overhead squats just to earn that position and start to feel it out and. I've just been basically doing hang power snatches then and just holding the bar and squatting down and trying to own those bottom positions. And so it's just kind of refreshing to hear that I'm not too far off doing something that's probably worth worth doing. So, um, yeah, that's good. That's good. So it is. I, I would be of the opinion too, yeah, that you need to uh, at least need to know those positions that they're going to eventually get into. So I'd be, that's why I do overhead squats and front squats. And also, very good that you said, you know, you do a lunge or even like a split squat press out, even with the jerk or something like that. So it's just, uh, you know, someone obviously of your expertise, it's good to kind of reaffirm that I'm not too far off. Yeah, and I think that uh, right now, right now because of, uh, uh, of the popularity of CrossFit, I think some people have lost sight of the fact that all training has to have a goal. Uh, either short-term goal or a long-term goal, and the short-term goals may be changing um, over time. So what we've got to do with uh, with an athlete is say we're going to work with you for the next week, um, on, and we're going to put an emphasis on this particular aspect of your training mm. because this is a problem that you have, and we should be able to make significant improvement over the course of the next uh, the next week. So uh, we'll put more emphasis on, on those particular aspects for that week and hope to bring those up a little bit and maybe de-emphasize them uh, as we move forward. Uh, but uh, I, I think as a coach, you have to, you have to keep thinking of, in terms of what do I want this training to accomplish? And that's how you decide what the character of the training is going to be and where you're going to put the emphasis. Yeah. Then getting more so into program design, what is the typical structure of an actual individual session? And it's, I know it can be individual to the person. I ask Greg Everett this. And Greg usually goes with an Olympic lift variation and then usually goes with some type of pull variation and then usually some strength work then. And then maybe, uh, you know, there might be an additional remedial exercise. That's one way. Now, he says that's not always the way. And he said that if you have a lifter who's strong but needs more skill work or more speed work, they'll probably start off with an Olympic lift. Whereas you get people who need to focus on more strength, they may start their session off with, you know, a squat variation before they go into Olympic lift. But typically, how would you set up the, the actual structure of the session? Do you usually move from your Olympic technical piece into maybe a a corrective movement then to correct that piece and then would you go into your strength work then to, to build up the strength to support all the Olympic work, all the technical work? Well, we'll do some kind of snatching, some kind of clean, cleaning every workout. At the, and, at the, at the uh, start, Bob, or would that change? It, it's, it can change. Um, uh, sometimes it's going to be a full snatch, sometimes a power snatch, sometimes a full clean, sometimes a power clean, sometimes from the hang, sometimes from blocks sometimes standing on blocks, uh, depending on what the particular weakness okay. that needs to be remediated. Yeah, and it I... could be a technical weakness or it could be a strength weakness. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we would go to pulling movements, which emphasize speed or jerking movements, and then uh, some type of strength development. And uh, I, I will use that 
during the time when uh, when the athlete is still in the learning process. Now, once they've achieved technical proficiency, then sometimes during preparation cycles, I will have athletes squat first, okay, okay. and then do do the lifts. But and that's done specifically to fatigue the legs, and then encourage them to make explosive movements while the legs are tired. This will cause a different recruitment pattern. So hopefully we're developing motor units by pre-fatiguing uh, the legs that way. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. And then in terms of how you set up your weekly and monthly and, you know, may, maybe I don't, I don't know if you plan in yearly cycles, but with your, with your weekly cycles and, and your training blocks, how do they, how do they go about? Do you, you know, do you undulate your blocks? Do you just linear load? Again, does it depend on the individual? Maybe a beginner there on a more sort of, you know, just easier, not easier, but simpler template versus when someone gets advanced, you might undulate those loads. Or do you look at training through like more like tonnages and how you spread those out over training block? And in then in terms of your weekly cycle, do you kind of have high day, high, heavy days um, alternating with more kind of lighter velocity days? So how does that look? Uh I do use basically an undulating model, but uh, you know during a preparation mesocycle, the 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 volume is going to be much higher than during a pre-competition. Yeah. But the undulation pattern is is the same. If you want to look at it in terms of percentages, you know, in the percentage of repetitions in the mesocycle in one week versus another, that undulation pattern is going to pretty much be the same but uh but in terms of absolute volumes it's going to vary mm. Mm. okay and so and, how, oh yeah go ahead go ahead yeah so uh what happens during preparation is the variety of exercises is going to be greater mm. and then during pre-competition that number uh is reduced so that it, you're doing more and more actual snatches and clean and jerks and not so much of, of the variations yeah yeah so you're going for so more the, it's the, i call it the character of the training you can uh uh you can have a a, a character of, of training during the preparation cycle where there's not that many classic movements okay so that you're working on getting stronger and you're working on on uh, uh, fatiguing the endocrine system yeah. so to speak but then as you get closer to the competition, you want the training to be closer and closer to what you're going to do in the competition. Mm. So the character of the training changes. Yeah, so you'd be a proponent of going from more general to specific means as competition approaches. Right. Yes. Yeah. And then obviously letting the endocrine system basically supercompensate as well. Yes. Yeah. So uh, would you be more of a – like would you clean, jerk, and snatch – or do some type of uh, snatch and clean and jerk every day, or do you like to alternate it? Do you like to have one day that's a little more emphasis on one of the lifts, or again, does it depend on the lifter? We'll do some snatching and clean and jerking every day, but I can vary the number of sets or the number of reps in that exercise. Okay. And then you also have to keep in mind that uh, you could probably do a little bit more snatching in terms of volume than you do clean and jerking, just because the impact on the body is less. Yeah, because the loads are generally lighter. Um, I was going to ask something else there, clean jerk of it. And then just in terms of your weekly cycle, like, do you have a preference for like a four-day or a five-day? I know in your book you showed a lot of five-day templates. Is that your preferred sort of cycle to go with? Uh, for most people, uh, five days works pretty well, especially if you're in a situation like athletes are in this country where uh, they're having to work for a living. Yeah, if they're professional athletes, then you can go at six days a week, and then I think that those uh, those frequencies can also be affected if you've got uh, recovery modalities available to them. Not everybody does, but uh, you know, if you can get a sports massage maybe a couple of times a week, and then have access to uh, sauna or steam or uh, cold plunges or things like that. Uh, you might be able to increase the frequency. But if you have days that were previously just rest days and then you have uh, recovery modalities available, you might be able to add another day, but you have to be careful about 
about the size of the volume. So I'm, I'm just I'm just looking at your book here on my phone, just about certain things. So like, uh, you you seem to <coughs> excuse me, you seem to like to prescribe a certain amount of repetitions, uh, for for each sort of um, each sort of cycle there, weekly cycle anyway. So I see one here, week two preparation mesocycle, 386 repetitions, and then you kind of have them split out then among the different types of exercises. Where did you learn that model and? and that's another question too. Like in terms of your programming, have you been influenced by different type of uh, programming ideologies? Like has it been a Russian influence or a Bulgarian, or has it been a mixture? Or like where where did you learn the actual model there that, that you program by? I would say all of them. Uh, there there's been the most uh, translations of the Russians available, so they probably had a bigger uh, bigger influence because there's been more more material available from them, but yeah. I've also read uh, things from the Hungarians and the Poles and the Romanians um, and the Bulgarians as well. Yeah. And then having been around training as it's developed in the United States uh, for the last 40 years or so, I've kind of had to put together my... that is coming out of Eastern Europe or that has come out of Eastern Europe is for selected, talented athletes uh, that have uh, uh, support in their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And working with Americans, we don't have those uh, those advantages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, you kind of just cut out there, uh, Bob, just for a second. So basically you were just saying that you had to tailor some of those programming details because the Americans didn't have the same sort of recovery support as some of those Eastern countries. Is that what you were getting at there? Yeah, and, and I can't I can't select people for talent. Yeah. I love to have talented people, but you know, a lot of the people that I get are not that talented. So, yeah. and and the difference between very talented people and not so talented people, it's almost like the difference between two species. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, you're, you're working with two very, very different groups. Uh, just a question I'd like to pose to you, because there is a lot of strength and conditioning coaches or physical preparation coaches or sports performance coaches, you know, whatever title people go with nowadays, um, who wouldn't be proponents of the Olympic lifts variations to develop explosive strength with their athletes. Uh, they believe that they're, they, they can use more simpler means and get similar results. Would you tend to agree with that, or again, would you be of the mindset that it depends if I have time to teach an Olympic liberation to an athlete, I will, and if I didn't, I might go with something else depending on the time scale. Um, but would you always be a proponent of teaching athletes, non-Olympic lifters, Olympic variations to uh, to help them in terms of their sports performance? Well, uh, let me start off by saying that, that I don't think that there's uh, there are any tools that are more valuable than uh, Olympic lifts for developing athleticism and strength in an athletic manner mm. uh, that are that are, there's nothing that's more time efficient so that uh, you could actually take the majority of athletes in need of strength and conditioning uh, have them do a snatch or a clean and jerk variation and some squats and they're going to make progress in their sport just because of that yeah. and you could do that that kind of training in maybe a half hour uh, three times a week and make significant progress. So uh, it depends on where the strength and conditioning coach wants to put in their time. Uh, for years, I've heard people say, we don't believe in, in doing Olympic lifts. Overhead lifting is dangerous. Explosive lifts are dangerous. And those are just all um, uh, subterfuge for, for admitting they don't know how to coach the lifts. Mm -hmm. So I think if you want to be an effective strength and conditioning coach, you need how to coach the, those lifts. It may take you some time and effort to do it, but it's well worth the effort. And then it's going to take some time initially to, to teach your athletes how to do the lifts well enough to benefit from them. But once you do that, I think that uh, you're going to make a lot, lot greater gains in the long term. And so... Uh, I, I would advise people that are going into strength and conditioning, they need to learn how the lifts are performed and they need to learn how to coach them and spend the time coaching their athletes to do them. 
and everything else is just uh, trying to sidestep that issue. Yeah, yeah. Just another programming question there. Um, I just wanted to pose to you. Would you be a proponent? You kind of did touch on this, but with in terms of your program, do you go from more of a accumulation uh, block to intensification to a peaking block? So I know you, you did say you have higher volumes already in those more preparatory blocks and more variation. So uh, as you get closer to competition, do, do you kind of use that sort of model of maybe more accumulation in the earlier cycles, then intensification, and then more peaking? And, you know, so for instance, like in the accumulation blocks, would you use more sort of complexes and maybe slightly higher repetitions per set for your snatch and uh, clean and jerk variations? And then would you taper that down more towards more singles as competition came? And likewise with your squad and strength exercises, would you have more volumes maybe hitting you know, triples or fours or fives in the earlier cycles and then bring that back down to maybe singles and doubles and triples as you get closer? Yeah, and I use the attitude that uh, during the preparation cycle we are we are working on the endocrine system. Yeah. And as okay. we get closer to the competition, we're working on the nervous system. Nice. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Very good. So I mean, you know, it, it, this isn't a secret, and people have been doing it for a long time. But I think uh, I, I don't think it's an issue that needs to be debated. You can do slight variations off of it, certainly, but uh, that's what. Oh, sorry, okay. I just lost it there against you. Yeah, I just lost <laughs> it there. Uh, just for a second, you just cut out. But sorry, you were saying that you're just saying there it's not a secret. That's kind of where you ended off there in terms of going from endocrine to nervous emphasis. Right. I mean, I, I don't think that's hard to understand, and I don't think it's difficult to, to figure out. And uh, you can make small variations on, on how you do it, but I think you need to keep those particular uh, emphases in mind as you go about training your athletes. Yeah, yeah. Just back now, there, there's something too that needs to be, uh, and I'll, I'll say it right here. Yeah. Uh, when you are a strength and conditioning coach, you are not the sport coach. Yeah. So you are not necessarily uh, concerned with coaching performance. That falls within the domain of the sports coach. Yeah. But when you're a weightlifting coach, you are you are training the athlete's body, but you also should be teaching them how to perform. Yeah. And uh, how to perform at the moment under pressure is something that weightlifting coaches have to master, and it goes beyond what, uh, for instance, a strength coach would be doing in a lot of cases, and and that's not addressed very frequently either. Yeah, just in terms again of your of your weekly cycle, I always spoke about that five day template. Would you generally go with a Monday through Friday, or do you like to break that up with a day of restoration in between and? Also, too, I kind of ask, do you go from more of a, like, let's say, let's say you were lifting Monday, Monday through Friday, would Monday, Wednesday, Friday be sort of more intensive days in terms of the load on the, on the system? And would Tuesday, Thursday be a little more lighter with a more velocity base? Is that how you yes. like to do it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I'm just wondering. Yeah. Generally, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Now, these questions are, could be very mundane for you, but for someone who's a novice, for me, figuring out Olympic lifting, I'm just... I'm just making sure that I'm reading things correctly and understanding them myself. So I did the same when I had Greg Everett on. I was asking these questions, and Greg was like, "Yeah, that's pretty much how we do." It. I was like, "Okay, just just making sure, just making sure." Um, yeah. it, it, a question, and and this could be a bit controversial. Um, I don't know if you pay attention to to much of the the uh, thoughts of Louis Simmons on Olympic weightlifting, but what would your thoughts be on some of his thoughts on using bands or chains for the Olympic? Well, not so much chains, but using bands for Olympic variations? Um, I, I really haven't uh, looked into that too much. The only thing I, I would con be concerned with using bands is uh, they restrict speed development. Okay. So if you're, you know, when, when you get to the, to the end of the range and the resistance provided by the band is at its greatest at that point, you're going to be cutting down on speed development. And it's usually at the end of a movement that you want to get the greatest speed. So as far as uh, consistency with speed, that aspect is, is overlooked by bands and chains. Yeah, yeah. You touched on restoration um, earlier on the podcast. What are some of your top ways or your favorite ways for restoration? Now, obviously, sleep, nutrition, hydration are probably the pinnacle of all restoration. I think... If most athletes could dial that in, it would greatly benefit them. But 
is there anything in addition to those big rocks that you would that you've seen good success from? Well, uh, the variation of the modalities that you use is critical. Um, uh, if you could afford athletic massage every day, even that would tend to lose its effectiveness because the body adapts to that recovery modality. Yeah. So you need to have a variety of, uh, of modalities available. So one day you might have massage, the next day you might use steam, the next day you might use some light swimming, the next day you might use a, a cold plunge. Mm -hmm. uh, all of these things are done uh, largely to improve local circulation. And if you use the same one all the time, uh, they lose their effectiveness. So they need to be varied from day to day. Yes, same, uh, same as training. I mean, it's a variation. If you keep doing the same thing over and over again, there's a diminishing return. Yeah, exactly. So you can't, you, uh, I mean, it, it's good to have one, but what we're really in need of, uh, and I saw one of these in Bulgaria, and I've talked to a couple of people since then about, uh, that were interested in starting one, is to have a recovery center. And in a recovery center, you would have all of these modalities available, and then athletes could could pick and choose so that they do vary them from day to day. Can you speak about your classes of lifters, one, two, and three, and how you came up with those classes? Uh, well, actually, the those classes were were sent to me from uh, by Bud Charniga, and he he uh, got them from the Russian literature, and I I believe they. Um, uh, they work backwards from international master of sport, which is the something like the average of seventh place uh, at the world championships and the Olympics for one quad. Yeah. And then if you if you look at the percentage of master of sport compared to international master of sport, that percentage is very consistent throughout all of the classes. And uh, basically, it's, it's a guideline for. Uh, coaches on how they should vary the training, and it's also kind of an incentive system for the athletes. And if you look at the numbers that are in my book, the biggest increase, it's about a 20% increase between master of sport and international master of sport. And as I understand the way that they've implemented it, international master of sport is where you get fully salaried as an athlete. Mm -hmm. So uh, they have financial incentives tied into that. I use those numbers just to give people an idea of how they're progressing along and how to vary their training. In terms of American weightlifting, what would you like to see put in place to help improve American weightlifting in terms of its its competitiveness on an international stage? Well, actually, uh, they're starting something that I suggested. I, I don't know if it was my suggestion suggestion, excuse me, that prompted it, but they're in the process of implementing camps to identify talent and uh, to get that talent then uh, linked up with some of the better coaches and better gyms. Um, everything that we've always, we've always done it in this country, uh, our best lifters have been, have been happy accidents. We just happened to get somebody that was talented into the sport. And um, other countries that have top-level elite weightlifting programs, they're going out and they're seeking talent and they're encouraging it to participate in the sport. And we need to do uh, more along those lines. Okay. Uh, right, now, right now you get somebody that happens to be talented. They happen to get found. They end up with a coach who may or may not know what they're doing. And uh, so the chances of them getting to the top are really, really quite slim. So we need to do something to increase those chances. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there, there's a there's a process. Um, I call it grooming the athlete. Of taking somebody that's very talented from day one and then putting them on a world team or and maybe on the medal stand. There's a long grooming process that takes place. And you can actually uh, cause uh, psychological damage to the athlete early if you're not mindful of that process. So uh, talent is rare, and if we're going to get it in a haphazard manner, we can't afford to squander it. So we need to make sure that the talent is 
associated with coaches that understand that long-term development process. Yeah, and I suppose another thing too is that I've heard the the sort of statement or the argument made to that a lot of the potential weightlifters that that could be very competitive for America are probably playing other sports because other sports are just more attractive, like football, um, you know, baseball or whatever else, and just the incentive to go down weightlifting is just not really there in terms of you know an actual career and money and whatnot. Well, yeah, but I think we use that as an excuse to not try. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that anybody that gets to be a great athlete is somebody that's very passionate about that particular sport. And uh, we need to find people that are talented at weightlifting and, and uh, develop the addiction in them for that particular sport. Uh, I, I don't buy the idea that you're, you're a great, great athlete's are purely mercenary. Yeah. I think they're passionate people that are addicted to that sport. Because if you're not addicted to the sport, you won't do the drudgery that's necessary to get get really good at it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Bob, a question I ask every guest who comes on the show is, what would you say have been the biggest lessons you've learned from the biggest mistakes you've made? Oh, let's see. Um, probably the... Uh, and I can think of the and weightlifting coaches talk about the ones that got away and we've all had people that were talented come to us and then we we didn't fail to uh, to make the sale so to speak and uh, I had a couple of those types of athletes that were very talented early in my career and I didn't I didn't work on trapping them so to speak getting them addicted to the sport. So uh, I paid a lot more attention to that, especially when I do get, I, when I get somebody talented. I do that now with all of my athletes. I try to get them uh, uh, absolutely entranced by the sport and, if possible, addicted to the sport. And the athletes that I already have on my team also help with that process. So um, it's not that you just – throw this in front of somebody and say you're going to like it or you will like it. Uh, what it actually comes down to is they, they need to be sold to the point where they will understand what's so attractive about it and they will continue to, to be involved. Hmm. Uh, then in terms of some of your top resources for any of the listeners, you know, what would be your, aside from your own book, which is, you know, I know, I will admit I, I've only dipped in and out of your book because I've been kind of reading for that and a bit of uh, dressers, the, the weightlifting encyclopedia, and also I just have a lot of college work at the moment. Statistics is the, the bear of my, my life, the, the vein of my life right now, as I say. But uh, in terms of some top resources like books or courses or videos or you know seminars, webinars, what would be your top resources for anyone out there looking to really up their knowledge in terms of Olympic lifting? Um, I, I think the base for somebody that's coming into the sport as a coach, I think that um, certainly they need to study a, a good physiology uh, course, uh, and I think uh, I would recommend. Uh, um, Mike Stone's principles of of uh, science. I'm sorry. For principles, yeah, called, it's the principles and practice of resistance training. A, a scientific approach. Uh, the principles and practice of resistance training is the name of it. That's Mike yeah, Stone. I, he, he I wrote, like that, and then I like yeah. Zatsiorsky's first book that was published That's in the, the United States. Yeah, the practice and science of strength training, or the science, right. the science and practice of strength training. Right. Uh, those are probably. Uh, two basic books that I think everybody should uh, read and assimilate and understand. But then, and, and once you get past a certain point, a lot of the information that you get comes from um, speaking with other coaches and talking about problems that they have and how they deal with them or even finding a problem that maybe they can't solve or you can solve or taking a problem to them and maybe they can come up with something. So. Uh, once you get past your 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 basic knowledge, and after you've been coaching long enough to understand how the process works, 
then the specifics are going to come from associating with other coaches. Yeah, yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Um, in terms then of your just your top overall advice, and you know, this advice doesn't necessarily have to be towards coaching or limited. It could be just life advice. Uh, what would be your top advice to any of the listeners? Uh, I I would say that uh, you need to find out what you're really passionate about and to pursue it. Yeah. And that'll probably get you uh, furthest along the way. If you if you have other other goals along the way of, of uh, becoming famous or or becoming uh, becoming an expert, those are really uh, kind of collateral goals. But if you want to become a weightlifting coach because you love weightlifting and you want to know as much as you can about it and you want to become as good as you can at developing athletes, that's going to take you much further than if you have uh, some other goal in mind. And uh, I think you see this in all fields. So people are are um, trying to solve uh, personal issues by pursuing a given activity. I, I don't think that works. I think you need to do things because you're passionate about them. Yeah, yeah. You kind of touched on this earlier on. Uh, just something that I'll uh, uh, close up with in the last few questions here. But you were kind of speaking about the the newer generation of of lifters and you know, they've got maybe different values than older generations. And is that something you've seen in your own coaching too, in terms of the new lifters coming in? Like what are some of the big differences you've seen, you know, from not only maybe an, a mental, emotional standpoint or a, a value standpoint, but even physically, like are you finding that it is harder to teach the Olympic lifts because of physical constraints because maybe we're more sedentary as well? And then also on the mental aspect of things, you know, are you seeing a sort of general shift in in the typical athlete that comes to your door nowadays? Like, you know, do you think that they're maybe not as mentally robust as lifters of old, or what are certain trends that you're seeing? Well, what I've seen and I've noticed a lot, and I think this is because of of the marketing uh, industry, so to speak, is we are told that something new comes along, or something different comes along, a new product, and it's an improvement over the old product and the old product is now obsolete and you have to replace all of the old ways of doing things with this new product and people have gotten the idea that there is a, a continuum of increasingly better products along the way and people kind of take that same approach with knowledge about training and uh, you could use methods that were used in, in the 1930s and still develop a very strong athlete a very good weightlifter. Um, so all of those things are available. Concepts that were available in the 1930s and the 50s and the 60s, all of those work, and you need to understand which one to use at at whatever time. And uh, 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 going along with that um, is the idea that that certain implements, gadgets, products, because of in, improving technology the rate at which they become obsolete. It used to be that you bought an appliance or something that you used in your house and it was going to be good for 10 years until it broke down and then you got rid of it and then you got a new one. Now that lifespan for a given product is much shorter because technological improvements are made, not because it wears out. And so people have a, a much shorter time span during the during which they believe something is valid, and they apply that same sort of thinking to concepts as well. So I, I think people need to get away from uh, commercialization and the rate of technology and understand that we're working with human bodies which have not changed significantly in thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, and, um, and understand the human body for what it is and not think of it in terms of a commodity or, or a, a replaceable technology. Just on that with technology, is, is there any of the kind of latest sports science technologies that you may think could have a place within the training of a weightlifter? So, you know, like things like maybe, and I know HRV is not completely new, but maybe HRV to monitor readiness or in terms of the actual training itself, would you think, Things maybe like velocity-based training may have uh, a, a place in in the training of Olympic weightlifter. I think a lot of 
many things that uh, are coming about right now could have a place, but they need to be developed in a weightlifting-specific manner. So if somebody comes up with a new idea or a new concept uh, or a new approach, uh, they need to get get together with weightlifting coaches and athletes and find some way to measure the progress that can be developed through this new approach. Um, just tossing something out, and, and I see these articles all the time about how we've improved, uh, you know, sprint times among uh, very mediocre people, and so we'll use this methodology and it's going to help world-class athletes. That doesn't fly. You need to actually develop it. Like I said, the difference between untalented people and talented people is almost the same as the difference between two species. Mm. And so new ideas, new technologies need to be developed in a sports-specific manner. Yeah, yeah. Bob, finally, uh, can you maybe just touch on your own sort of business, your own gym, what sort of services you provide? Uh, do you provide any educational seminars? Uh, maybe talk about, you said there could be another future book in the works, any upcoming project. Um, and then also, I see you also offer internships, so maybe some young coaches might be interested in that. Yes. Uh, well, we're a weightlifting gym. We also offer strength and conditioning services uh, for athletes that want to improve at their own sport. And uh, we do a lot of instruction for beginners that want to learn how to do the lifts correctly. And uh, they may not necessarily want to become weightlifters, but uh, my, uh, my approach on that is that the more people we get out there that know how to do the lifts correctly, the more it's going to benefit everybody within the weightlifting community. Um, the internship was something that I developed because I realized that there are a lot of people that have had the academic grounding to become a strength and conditioning coach, but they were, there's not anywhere that they could go where they could actually learn how to coach the lifts. And uh, there's actually been people that just out of necessity have had to learn some weightlifting coaching in a gym, and uh, but they needed more refinement. So I've opened up the internship for people that want to learn how to coach the lifts, how to spot mistakes, what remediation exercises to use, how programming is supposed to work. Those are some of the topics that we cover. And uh, so far, we've, well, we started the program two years ago, and we've had 36 people come through it. Wow. And many of them are now working in their own gyms or, or working for places where they can put that information to good use. So it's kind of my way of, of developing little pods of knowledge that can go out there and spread it and help to improve things overall. Yeah, it's a bit of legacy, you too, isn't it? You know, so that's great stuff. Uh, and then you were just saying that there could be a potential book in the future about um, more athletic development or strength conditioning, or what? What? What would? What's on your mind there, or can you divulge any details? Well, I've got I've got a lot that I would still like to um, get out and make available, but I'm trying to decide whether or not a, a book is the right means uh, the most effective format for that yeah. uh, I'm, I'm playing with the idea of doing a number of uh, webinar type presentations and then having those uh, made available um, uh, either at some video hosting site or or by some other method uh, DVDs are kind of passe now so I, I don't think I'll go that route yeah but, yeah I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out some way to get the best knowledge out to people in the most effective way that I can. Okay, that's great stuff, Bob. Uh, that's uh, unless you have anything else, that's pretty much it. All I have for you today. I really appreciate your time. Um, so if you have anything else you want to add before I wrap up the show, you can. You're free to free to speak now. Well, I, I don't know that I I don't think I've said anything that's that's groundbreaking, but sometimes it's good for people to hear. Um, somebody that's perceived as an expert uh, confirming what they're doing. Yeah. That's just as beneficial as bringing in a new idea or a new concept or approach. So I hope that uh, some of what I've done does a little bit of that. And um, I'd like to uh, I'd like to see more of what you're doing, where you're you're talking to people that are experts and sharing that knowledge and getting it out there. I think that's beneficial for everyone involved. And in the end. I'm concerned with whether or not athletes get the best training that they can get. And so 
you're contributing that by providing that knowledge to coaches out there. So I, I allowed you for that, and uh, thank you for having me on today. Oh, that's great, Sophia. Just stay, and stay online just for an extra few minutes before I, I'll just wrap up the, the uh, podcast here. So, guys, an absolute great hour with Coach Bob Decano. Make sure you check out his website. Your website is decanoathletics.com. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah, so you'll get all of Bob's information there in terms of his gym and his services and any of his, his uh, products like his book. Um, which is absolutely outstanding. Um, and then just make sure I doubly give me the title of that. It's weight weightlifting programming, Bob. Weightlifting for programming. Or, yes, weightlifting program. Weightlifting program is making absolutely not sure. too clever. <laughs> original, original. But it's it's actually it's it's a really beautiful cover too. Yeah, weightlifting programming. A winning coach's guide, Bob Tacano, U.S. Weightlifting Hall of Fame. And so yeah, it's, it it is a lovely, lovely book. I I actually managed to get the PDF printed off. So. I just said when I get the time now over the summer, I'll really delve into that. And uh, if I have any more specific questions, we can always get you back on. So, uh, guys, really appreciate you listening. Share the podcast out on social media. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes. All that helps bump us up in the ratings and get this information out to the people that need it. So until next time, guys, I'll talk to you soon. Take care and stay strong.